0: I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorate. On today's episode, Lieutenant Governor of New York State, Kathy Hochul.
1: Isn't that nice?
0: Today's guest, the most powerful woman elected to office in the state of New York, is here, Kathy Hochul, Lieutenant Governor of New York State. Kathy Hochul is inspiring, to say the least. She's held positions at every level of government, and in this conversation, we talk about what that's been like for her. You know, what it takes to win, and most importantly, what to do when you don't win. And luckily for us, Kathy Hochul is committed to helping other women succeed. She started a hashtag campaign called How She Does It, where she talks frankly about how she does all of the things. We also talk about the fact that New York State, they have an entire women's justice agenda for 2019. You know, this conversation is full of wisdom and gems that I personally will hold on to and refer back to for a long time to come. So I won't delay any longer. Here is my conversation with Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul. Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, delighted to be on. I'm so excited to talk to you, by the way. And one of the things that I just learned about you is that your mother was an activist. She dedicated her life to helping victims of domestic violence. She sure did. Yeah, that's a really incredible way to grow up, watching your mother do this type of work. Um, what was that like for you? Well. Not only victims of domestic violence,
1: but back in the late 1960s, my parents were protesting the Vietnam War. So when I was a little grade schooler, I had to wear a black armband protesting the war. Uh, My parents took me to civil rights marches back then. And we are involved in the environmental movement and uh, housing opportunities made equal so we could open up uh, lily white suburbs to people of color to have an opportunity to live in homes. And then she morphed into fighting for victims of domestic violence, basically what she had seen in her own home where she had an abusive father who uh, left her and her mother and abandoned them. And she had a very tough childhood and had to Take care of younger siblings when her mother died when she was sixteen, and she really had a tough life. But instead of being taken down by all the challenges, it really built her resiliency. And I've always looked to her for strength when I've had tough challenges because what she overcame was phenomenal. And to harness her passion for helping others into really becoming an early advocate for victims of domestic violence, and back then uh, they just called them victims of wife beating, and it wasn't even cleaned up and. People who just really talked about it. And it was something that was really in the shadows. So she launched hearings in our state legislature. She helped start a home for, uh, a transitional home for victims to be able to go for shelter and. I remember going with my siblings and painting rooms and bringing toys in for little kids. And so she really became a champion at a time when people really didn't acknowledge that the problem existed. And I was so proud of her back then. And she decided to go to college back when I was in college because she wanted to make sure that she had the degree in social service. and. You'll be able to continue doing her work. And even for her 70th birthday, we asked her what she wanted to do. And she says, let's open another home for victims of domestic violence and a, a home that now has six families and children who have a whole new lease on life because of it. So I was blessed to have that environment, a sense that we have a social responsibility to others. And I'll never forget the role model that my mom was. We lost her a few years ago to a terrible disease ALS, but we continue our work in, in her name. And you know, I I again I feel very fortunate to have
0: had that environment to grow up in. Right. Wow. That is an incredible way to grow up. I mean, so when did you get bitten by the activist bug? I know you did some activism in college at Syracuse University. I sure did. A little before that, my family wasn't political. I didn't have any you know, relatives who ran
1: for office. And my father had worked at the steel plant and my mother had worked on her causes, but was really a homemaker. But when I was in high school, I took advantage of a high school program where I could leave school early every day and go work on an internship. And I chose the Democratic Party locally. And the chairman of that party was also the New York State chairman. And all the major candidates running for federal office and state office came came through our offices when I was there. I was the youngest in the room by far. I was probably 16 years old, definitely the only girl in the room and it was you know my first experience about being the only female in a room but I overcame it and I had a chance to work with Individuals like Tim Russert, who was starting in his career working for Senator Moynihan at the time to get him elected back in his first election in 76. And I had the, you know, it was really an honor to be able to be surrounded by the real political thinkers of my time. And that inspired me to realize the tremendous potential that government affords us to help solve problems of society, but also make people's lives better. So I always knew back then that I wanted to be a staffer someday. I never dreamed of running for office. I was going to be an attorney on the staff of Senator Moynihan or someone like him someday. And that was my goal since I was a teenager and carried into Syracuse University, where I I would be honest in saying they couldn't wait for me to graduate because I was protesting (laughs) everything they did. And I was proud that as the student representative to our university trustees, we were able to convince them to divest their holdings in companies doing business in South Africa. There was a major movement back then to try and create pressure to end apartheid. So I did all the protests and uh, brought down the the wrath of all the students on our trustees, and you know, and boycotted our bookstore because prices were too high. And I have a whole list. I didn't attend a lot of classes. I had to take a few incompletes because <laughs> I was out there, you know, stirring things up. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I was able to use that experience to give me the confidence and public speaking, speaking in front of a. Uh, the assembly of 150 other student leaders every time I wanted to get something done. I think that's what really steeled me toward you know, life in public service, but also becoming an advocate for other people. And when I talk to college students today, and I love having interns, and I just spoke to my interns yesterday, use this opportunity to hone in on your skills and develop leadership and public speaking and writing skills that are going to propel you to opportunities later, Do that when you're in high school and college, and you'll be so far ahead of everybody else. And that's what I did.
0: I love that. (laughs) (laughs) I love that story. You know, I feel like universities don't really encourage dissent anymore. It's like they think students are going to cause a stir or, you know, they're going to be radicalized or something. Yeah, it wasn't violent, but certainly, you know, taking over the administration's
1: offices for a couple of days, you know, and we sat there (laughs) in the lobby and ordered pizza, had it delivered. And, you know, we're just making our point. And, we also tried to have our university new stadium named after Ernie Davis, the first Black Heisman Trophy winner who had played for Syracuse University in football and went on to professional but career, but he also died at a young age of leukemia. And we had to go convince the large corporate interests that they should use their money not to name the, the stadium after themselves, but to name it after this inspirational a figure, you know, this graduate of Syracuse University. Clearly, I lost because it was not called the early da- Ernie Davis Dome right now. It's called the Carrier <laughs> Corporation Dome. But at the time, it was, again, I was probably 19 years old, went in and just, you know, took on the establishment, took on the head of the corporation. And as a result, they did name the field after Ernie Davis. And so, I also learned that sometimes you're not going to get everything you want, but you can get a compromise. If you don't even ask for anything, you'll get nothing. And that's a given. And I've used that throughout my life, something I learned at a young age to help me negotiate and to push for, you know, far reaching objectives, but be, you know, know that if I didn't raise my voice up on behalf of people or causes, they might not get accomplished. And so I've always looked back to that as just a, a formative time in my life.
0: Right. So so you said you weren't looking to initially run for office, right? So what was the very first position you held, the elected position? Well, this is an interesting story. And I tell this to young women all over
1: because I don't want them to be like me. Uh, I had the goal, as I said, when I was younger to be a staffer. And I did. I was an attorney for Senator Moynihan, worked on Capitol Hill for a congressman and had the opportunity to write speeches and work on legislation that was important. And I was so happy just to really, you know, make the other guys look good. And I was good at what I did. And I never dreamed that I'd have the courage to really be the person who put their name on the ballot, because that just seems so far-fetched for women. There were so few role models. And I just thought, you know, I could be happy working for other people. And I went back to my hometown after years in Washington and started going to local town board meetings and realizing that there were some big corporate interests like Walmart. that were trying to come into town and would hurt our local community. And Fighting against you know Exxon Mobil because the prices were too high of gasoline, and so I started thinking. You know what? I I went to a lot of meetings. I was involved in my local party, and finally there was an opening on our town board. And I didn't even think that after you know working as an attorney, working in Washington, being an advocate, an activist, that I had what it took to run for local office. And then a 21 year old young man, right out of college never had a real job, still living at home with his parents, decides he's going to run for that very position. And I said, you know what? I'm 35. I've done all this, you know, raising a family. I'm in this community. I'm vested here. I care about it. And maybe I should take a shot as well. Well, the good news is there were two positions. We both ran and we both won. And I served with this young man and others for 14 years. And I tell the story that he was not wrong. His confidence in himself was well-placed. Today, he now runs a you know, three-quarters of a billion-dollar healthcare organization in Buffalo. So he knew he had something when he was 21 that I didn't know I had in me when I was 35 and had accomplished a great deal. So I say, where are the 21-year-old women who have that much confidence in themselves that they've got a voice that needs to be heard, they've got something to offer, and don't end up like me waiting forever? And, I'm, and I've had a great career, but that was my first experience in public life. Uh, and I would have been happy with that. I really was very content fighting the good causes on behalf of the people of my town. But another opportunity came to run for a countywide office. I ran for that successfully. Uh, other opportunities came for Congress. We can talk about that crazy race and I unexpectedly won in the most Republican district in New York. And then on to Lieutenant Governor. So I've served at every level of government. I've cherished every one of them. I find each one of them fascinating. But for me now, I feel really in tune with people locally and I understand their concerns really at a gut level. I still go visit the diners and stay connected with people in my hometown, kind of a gritty steel town that was you know, left for dead after Bethlehem Steel pulled up a decade ago, two decades ago. So I really feel a connection with people that have had it tough in life because we started out very humbly My parents used to live in a trailer park and when they got a little house, they thought they had just, you know, living the American dream. And I've always appreciated what I have because so many people still don't have what I've able to have because of a good education and a loving family.
0: You know, I still find that story inspiring. You know, whether you had decided to run at 21 or the fact that you decided to run after you'd started a family at 35, you know, either way, women can't win, right? We're either too young Or, you know, we're too old, right? And so I still find that story really inspiring. So, you know, I mean, often when women, you know, they have families and they they get to middle age or, you know, 35 really is middle age. But, you know, we we still lack that confidence. So, yeah. I just
1: spoke to a group of women in our state capital of Albany yesterday. It was uh, women in government and uh, public service. And it was mostly college students. And I said, the reason so many women don't achieve their full potential is they lack something called confidence and it's it's in your own head said so you can walk out this door today and have confidence in yourself and walk into your next meeting even if it's a room filled with men and act like you own the place not in an arrogant way but a way that shows i can handle anything and that's a strength we have i said don't underestimate how strong women are said I've had a couple of kids. I guarantee that if men were the ones who were responsible for rearing or having children, we'd probably have no population left at all. I mean, women are tough, we're resilient, we can handle pain, we can handle adversity and lean into that. And women, you're tough. So act like you have the confidence. People will not follow someone who's not confident in themselves. You can't be a leader if you don't believe in yourself and it's all in your own head. And so I just wanted to impress upon them Start at your young age and and feel that you can take on any challenge, no matter how big it seems. And now there's role models. When I was running, there were very few women in, in elective office. And I say as the highest ranked woman in New York State, I have a responsibility to other women, all ages, but particularly the young ones who need to see that someone went before them and paved the way. And I wear a necklace that is actually a piece of broken glass. I'm wearing it today. And it reminds me of the glass ceilings that have been broken, but the ones that still need to be broken yet. And that's what I work on every day as lieutenant governor, trying to embrace these issues that affect women deeply, go out and talk about them, how we can change public policy. But also, if I can touch an individual and get them to want to run for office or work on elections or become a champion of a particular advocacy issue like reproductive health, then to me, that's success. That's how I define success.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm still stuck on that, that image of you as a 16 year old, walking into that room full of men, and then here talking about confidence. I mean, that must have taken, you know, I could just see you, you know, there, still in high school, probably among these men, it must have taken quite a bit of confidence to just do that.
1: Yeah, I don't think I thought I had it back then. And even in high school, you know, I was definitely not in the, you know, in my yearbook, no one would have written uh, most likely to succeed, uh, likely to run for office. That was, I was still relatively shy, didn't like to talk to people much, but I still had this thing about government. Maybe it's a field trip I took to Washington in eighth grade and had a social studies teacher that talked about what's going on in that capital and how important it is. or the causes that my parents exposed me to talking about you know, when Martin Luther King was assassinated and Bobby Kennedy was assassinated and Watergate and all those really defining issues in, you know, long ago history when I was when I was really becoming you know, my formative years, I would say. And so I would not say I was confident as a teenager at all, but I I was probably just fearless. I I wasn't intimidated. And, you know, believe me, being in that room with, you know, a lot of young men in college and beyond, you know, wasn't comfortable and certainly I endured my share of comments, which you just, you know, roll off of you and just know that's part of how it is. And it's frustrating to me to know that that culture hasn't changed that much, that there's still women who have to endure an awful lot when they're in in these all-male settings or primarily male workplaces. And that's what I talk about to people and how to try to overcome that. And it's, you know, frustrating that it's going on today, but I think women have really turned the corner in terms of feeling empowered to stand up for themselves, whether it's the Me Too movement or just society shifting finally away from acceptance that it's normal to make comments about women in the workplace or to be able to sexually harass them or hold them back. I think we're having some breakthroughs, and, I, and I'm starting to see it more in the political world as well, with the number of women elected to Congress, for example. And I When I had a chance to go back and visit my former colleagues and see Nancy Pelosi as speaker, and, a, you know, the side of the aisle that I used to sit on filled with more women and diverse women, that to me was so exciting. And it really set my heart racing to know that in a short time, we've really made some real
0: progress. And me as well. well let's go back to something you alluded to, that, that unlikely race that you won in a red district. Tell me more about that. Well, I had been in a county official
1: in Erie County, which is around Buffalo, New York, not far from Niagara Falls, that side of New York State, very far from New York City. People think we're, all of New York is New York City. It is not. There's a big sections of New York State that are probably politically closer to Texas than uh, than San Francisco would be, for example, which we consider more New York. So it's a diverse area. I had the opportunity to look at this race when there was a member of Congress who you can look up the history, um, but I would just make a recommendation that if you're a, a current member of Congress, don't look for men or women on on a social media using your real name. Okay, just that's some advice. So that <laughs> that, that was exposed uh, from a married man, and he got into trouble, and he decided he needed to resign very quickly. So all of a sudden, there was a vacancy in this conservative district, and I was also looking at running for the highest county office, which is county executive which would have been much easier. I would have probably won. The poll showed me ahead. I could have raised the money. I had high name recognition. And that would have not been as big a challenge. It would have been an honor, but not as big a challenge. But the congressional race, um, I sat down with my family and my 21-year-old daughter at the time and said, listen, let me, let me lay this out to you. This one side of the ledger, I could probably win this co- other county race, the elections this year. I'd have to work on that now. But Congress, um, here's, here's what we're up against most Republican district in New York. It's very large. I'd have very low name recognition. I'd have to raise millions of dollars. I don't have any money. And uh, it'd be a national race. And I'd probably get really beat up by the Koch brothers and everybody else who's going to run negative ads. And I said to my daughter, Katie, I said, what do you think I should do? And she looked up at me and she said, mom, Congress, duh, you have to do Congress. (sighs) And I realized, you know what? I've got this daughter that I've raised and I wanted her to know that her mother had the guts to do something that is likely to fail as I was, that I still had the guts to take a risk. and. I needed to teach her that lesson in that moment. I kind of set myself up, but I said, okay, we'll do Congress. And my family got on board and believe me, for the first few months, it was probably only my family and close friends who thought I could do, pull this off. But I started going out to the diners and the talking to the farmers and senior citizens. And at the time, uh, this is 2011, Paul Ryan had just uh, ascended to becoming chair of the budget committee. And their plan was to really decimate Medicare. And I use that as an issue to go after Republican seniors in my district and say, we cannot have Republicans in Congress break the promise that has been made to you since 1965 that we'll make sure that you have health care when you're when you're a senior citizen as you get older. And on that issue and some other important issues like that, I really just found this opening, this lane. And started moving up in the polls a little bit because uh, very few people paid attention. My state party, the national party, I was on my own for a long time. But once they saw over this, you know, very short three month election period, my polls numbers trending forward, I was starting to get the support I needed out of Labor and Washington. And in the end, shocked the nation. It was, you know, we had an election night where every national media truck was there. We had the London Times. We had newspapers from Hong Kong. And it was, it was crazy. Uh, so you know, this is in Buffalo. So we won that election with 5% of the vote a margin. And I went to Washington. I was sworn in a couple days later. And I didn't have a place to stay because I didn't expect to win. So Congresswoman Carolyn Maloney, who represents New York City, let me stay in a spare bedroom and we shared a bathroom. And my um, second day on the job, I was asked by Debbie Wasserman Schultz, another roommate, if I wanted to play softball with them. And joined the women's <laughs> softball team. So I was playing softball, even though I'd never played before. And uh, it was an incredible experience. And I'll, I'll never never regret you know going for that. And that was really an honor to serve there. But we had redistricting in 2012. They redrew the lines to make them even more Republican. And I lost that seat by uh, less than 2% um, the next election out. So I didn't hold it very long, but it really made me understand how important the issues are that we worked on. And I just would not turn my back on issues like the Affordable Care Act. I had the opportunity to vote against it probably 45 times and my district did not support the Affordable Care Act and they did not support contraception and reproductive health rights that I fought for. And I really paid the price because I, I lost that. that. Those became the heart of the attack ads against me that were funded by the Koch brothers and Karl Rove and some other dark monies that influenced our race. But that being said, a year later, after spending a year in the private sector, I received a call from Governor Cuomo that he was wondering if I would consider being his running mate for his second term in office as governor, and I signed right back up and ran in a primary. I wasn't expecting a primary, and if you know New York politics at all, there's a lot of votes in New York City, not from upstate New York where I'm from, so we had to work really hard and win that primary, and I was successful in the, in the November election, so... That's where I've been for the last four and a half years and feeling really truly fortunate that I now have the platform, a statewide platform even larger than I had when I was in Congress to champion causes for women whether it's paid family leave or or childcare issues which I'm working on or making sure we have a higher minimum wage one of the highest in the nation so I get I get a chance to work on things that matter to people and it's so fulfilling and so. It's, it's just uplifting to know that, you know, that life, you don't know what, how it's going to turn out. But I've been really fortunate. That's all I can say. And I, I love every single day. I get up and bang it out one more day and see if I can meet more people and inspire them and make them feel good about what their government can do for them. This morning, I opened up an affordable housing place in a tough part of Brooklyn known as Bushwick. A lot of poverty there. But to be able to tell people that you don't have to worry about sleeping on the streets tonight, you have a warm place where people will take care of you that's to me is what government's all about. We take care of people and that's what we do at the
0: state level. Well, that's amazing. You're making me both want to run for office and move to New York. (laughs) Well, we welcome you to come to New York and I'll help your campaign. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) I was you kind of answered my next question I was going to ask you about losing an election and and I was going to ask that because the other day I was on, on Twitter and I saw somebody they started a thread about a woman and I can't remember her name and I can't remember what state or district she ran for but she lost an election by I think single digits her loss was in single digits and the thread was to encourage her to run again. And it reminded me of this conversation I'd had, it was sometime last year before the midterms. And I think it was with, I can't remember anything right now, but I think it was with Mm -hmm. Kelly Didmar. And she is with COP, the Center for American Women in Politics. And we were talking, and the thing that she said that was really memorable to me was that she wasn't worried about the midterms in terms of our getting the necessary seats, right? That may or may not happen. You know, the pink wave may or may not happen. But what she was worried about was, If we didn't have that wave, if if women didn't win the seats that were expected of them, that they would, you know, kind of give up and we would lose that momentum and we wouldn't try again, you know? And so that was my next question to you about whether you've ever lost an an election. And you just told me that you did. (laughs) You know, how did you, what did you do? What did you draw on to pick yourself back up and to get back in? What would you say to women who've lost?
1: That is a great question because, you know, people focus on the victors and just, most recently, you know, the first calls I made after the uh, 2018 election and a lot of people I had supported, women had run for Congress in really tough districts and I helped them all across the state of New York. I called them first, the ones who lost, because as I said, I've been there. Um, You know, it's painful when you lose an election, especially when when you've already held the seat as I did and you work so hard and you have a lot of people who believe in you. I think women, Can handle the loss, but they know they've disappointed people. And I I think what hurt me the most was knowing that my staff and my friends and my allies and my family were probably in pain because of my loss. And that's, that's what I focused on. And I, and it was hard and you don't want to get out of bed for a lot of days. And... I swear I had PTSD. I didn't even want to go into the grocery store. My husband had to do all the grocery shopping because you just think people are looking at you like, oh, you're a loser. And we saw all those horrible negative ads about you, which were so horrific. Horrific. I didn't even want to vote for myself when that was, I said, am I oh, really, no. that, am I that bad? And, you know, the little girl next door to us uh, told her mother, she says, please turn off the TV. They make Mrs. Hokel look so scary when, when, they, of course it's <laughs> Halloween time and they've got me on a broom like a witch and, you know, just bad stuff. <laughs> really? So, so it's really, it's tough, but I tell women this too. I said, cause guess what? Eventually I healed and I got better. And, and you know, if it doesn't kill you, it makes you stronger. And I said, no one can touch me now. I am, I am like steel, and I want other women to know that. That you may have lost one time. Look at how many men who are running now. Let's look at Joe Biden, for example. Or Ronald Reagan took three times to become president. I mean, men will do it again. Men will be out there fundraising the next time already, and act like nothing happened. And the women that are already now talking about running again after losing. I find them inspiring and I want them to know that I'll support them and we'll get it the second time around. And, you know, just by stepping up and saying, I'm willing to run, they're in a very small percentage of the population that has the guts to do that or who care enough to expose themselves to tremendous public scrutiny. I mean, everything from what you're wearing and, you know, how your hair looks and if you put on a couple pounds and all these other things are talked about incessantly, but you have to have a clear eyed vision of why you're doing it. Don't put up with all the crap. Just don't let it bother you. As my mother used to say, no one can make you feel bad without your permission. So I don't give anybody permission and stay focused on the prize, which is having a position where you can help people have a better life. And if you can keep your mind on why you're doing it and let everything else just, you know, peel away, you have to do that. It's it's part of survival in this business. So I'm not going to sugarcoat how painful it is when you lose an election but you will feel much better about yourself if you go back at it and try again and that's what i want women to know
0: well wow. i'm going to you're made of steel <laughs> i'm going to wake up every morning and <laughs> tell myself that in the mirror <laughs> you're st- we are we're, <laughs> we're tougher than
1: we give ourselves credit for we really do uh, and that's just another hang up that women have and we got to go over a few things ourselves and i'm i'm excited about you know trying to change it for other women making it, making it a difference but um, and that's why you know I, I have this hashtag. We can talk about that too. I talk about lessons that I've learned through a hashtag called "How She Does It," and we launched this back in March, and we have had such a great response. And I started telling really just personal stories about how I survive every day. And because I get asked, I mean, you, I travel. I've gone around the planet mile wise, probably. Probably almost 10 times. It's definitely over nine and a half. So I'm constantly on the road. I travel the entire state. I go to every event known to man. I meet thousands of people. I've given 2,300 speeches. And how do you prepare for speeches? How do you survive being on the road all the time? And so I found the opportunity through this hashtag where I can answer those questions. And I start off by saying that women are born multitaskers and people want to know how I pack and travel and deal with hotels and airports and balance family and exercise and what I eat. So we've had some fun answering these questions, but more recently I've done a couple of things. One is having given so many speeches, and this is something that terrifies both men and women, but I tell women, if you can get comfortable delivering a speech, there's no stopping you. And a lot of it's just practice in front of a mirror, but it's in confidence. So I give five major points on how to give a speech as part of my hashtag. And in fact, I was... Um, Speaking to the Democratic National Committee in New Jersey uh, last Friday, and a woman came up to me and she says, you know, I'm I'm involved in my community. People are telling me I should run. I didn't feel good about giving speeches. She goes, and I saw your hashtag and I read how you do it. And I'm thinking I can do this now. And I said, you know what? You just made my day because that's why I'm doing this. I'm trying to share a lifetime of experience with other women because the women who've made it to the top we have a responsibility to reach back and pull other people up with us. And through this hashtag, we're able to give little tips on what to do. And one of the ones that got a lot of attention recently was I talked about answering the question, what it's like to deal in a male dominated world. And I said, here's the answer. I've been called an iron fist and a velvet glove. What does that mean? I said, what that means is I embrace all the assets and strengths of my femininity but I will not hesitate to fight back and use my power to fight for myself and for other people. So don't underestimate me. And so I talk about this and, and a lot of people have responded to that. A lot of men have responded to that. And I had a man say, I showed that to my daughter. I want my daughter to be tough. And so we're enjoying it, but I'm answering questions every single day. And if you have any questions, I mean, everything from, you know, what I eat on the road and what I pack with me and when I get my, most of my work done and how I prepare for interviews and, how I fit in gym and uh, you know, exercise in the hotel gym. And I actually said, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is my inspiration. When <laughs> I see someone of her age and her position still working out, I feel like a slacker if I don't at least do 10 minutes a day. So uh, I do go to a lot of hotel fitness centers and, and try to work out a little bit too. But And another question was, how do you balance family and work? And I said, first of all, there's no balance. So don't don't expect it. There's no, You're never going to feel equilibrium. Because if you're at work, you're feeling guilty about not being at home with your family. If you're with your family, you're preoccupied with work. So you're going to get through. I I tell a lot of women with young kids, here's the good news. I mean, you love your children, but they're going to eventually grow up and move away. And during this time, you need to teach them lessons about what life is all about and how to be involved in your community. And by running for office when your kids are young, they, I guarantee will be better citizens someday, like my kids who are millennials who are constantly, they live in Washington. They're always protesting something that Donald Trump did, or my daughter's sending a march on you know, reproductive health or marching with the scientists or the LGBTQ community. So I'm really proud of them. And they didn't have me home all the time. And I felt guilty about that. But I also know that my job was to launch them as responsible, caring adults into the world. So if you look at the long view of what you're supposed to do as a parent, you can overcome a lot of this guilt that you have if you're running for office and you're not going to make every single baseball game or parent-teacher conference. And hopefully you have a support system, either a spouse, a partner, family, friends. And I think that women ought to step up and help other women with childcare on that front. And I never hesitate to watch somebody else's kids so they can get out and campaign. And I appreciate when people help me out. So we need to support each other, lift each other up. And that's that's what
0: I do. Yeah, I think your message about involving children is so important. I actually just made that decision, you know, a couple of weeks ago, just thinking like when I give talks and talk about, you know, whatever, justice, social justice or anything, equal rights. You know, when I can, when the content's appropriate, I'm going to bring my kid, you know,
1: <laughs> so your they can t- hear how, those. How old are your children? My, my
0: son is seven.
1: So, okay, perfect age. I hope he's been voting every year, even school board <laughs> elections, you know, take him to every vote. And, you know, when my kids turned 18, I mean, at breakfast, they were greeted with a voter registration form I and mean, they were not <laughs> going to go to school that day until they registered. So, so I impressed upon them and my kids were little, but they got their pictures taken with Bill Clinton and Al Gore and. And uh, all the candidates that were running back then and, you know, just, just they know it's important. You know, they they know that public service is expected of them
0: in yeah. some fashion,
1: whether working on other people's races or contributing or being an advocate. But you're on this planet a short time and it's not about how much money you make. It's about what you do. And in fact, um, back to what we talked about at the outset, the influence of my mother, when I was growing up, my mother's favorite saying was on our refrigerator and it said, go into the world and do well, but more importantly, go into the world and do good. And I forget who said that, but my mother had that on our refrigerator. And when we, uh, we buried her five years ago last month, we actually put that on her tombstone. So when all of her 18 grandkids would visit grandma in the cemetery, they would see the words that she lived by as an inspiration. And that's the expectation that we should have on our own children, that we expect you to be a contributor someday and you should watch how we do it because that's our job. It's generational. I have a responsibility to teach the next generation to fight for the environment and to fight for women's rights and to stand up when someone's bullied. And you know, we, we have so much power as parents and to use it every day. You know, we're forming these little kids' minds, especially a seven-year-old that you have. You know, they're watching everything
0: you do and what lessons you can teach by just through your work. Right, exactly. You know, I, I want to go back to your hashtag, um, how she does it because this is amazing. So I, and, and I'm really bad at using hashtags correctly. So tell me how this works. So if I use the hashtag, how she does it, you'll come in, you'll swoop in. And give me advice, <laughs> like you know, sending out a, a bat signal. Is that how it works? Or- well, it, it's actually it's not that
1: engaged. It's uh, <laughs> it's 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 on my Twitter account. Um, it's you know, I have a Lieutenant Governor Twitter account. So if you go under that, that is, you can look up the hashtag #HowSheDoesIt, and you'll see all my posts on it. And if you're not on Twitter yourself, it's like Lieutenant Governor Hochul, NY. Lt. Gov. H o c h And so that's my Twitter handle. And if you look under that, you'll see the hashtag, uh, how she does it. And if you're not on Twitter, you can just Google that and it'll pop up. You don't have to be a Twitter user. So that's where people are sending ideas to us. And what I did, I was on uh, television news in uh, New York City on Friday about this. And I said, you know what, I've given a lot of advice. I want to hear how other women do it, not just how she does it with respect to me, how you do it. And so we've asked people to put in sort of their daily survival techniques or how they get along in a male dominated profession or just advice they have on how to lift other women up. So we start this ripple effect of women feeling a responsibility for other women. And that's how we're going to have a breakthrough in society and hopefully get more women to run and be taking their positions in boardrooms and asserting their their power that they have. And again, it's not an obnoxious, aggressive way. It's just getting your needs met and
0: getting the needs of your causes met and finding the way to do it. Oh, I love that. I think that's so helpful right now. So I want to talk about what you've been doing with uh, New York State in your current position, right? So you mm-hmm. have an entire women's justice agenda for 2019, right. which I think is, is, is amazing. So talk about some of the things that are a part of that agenda. We thought it was
1: really important, particularly with the assault on women's rights that's occurring in Washington, whether it's the Supreme Court, whether it's the President, Congress, or even agency decisions that are affecting women every day, uh, that we needed to, first of all, protect the rights of Roe v. Wade in our state law. We didn't have this. Uh, What happened in New York State is that in 1970, we legalized abortion in New York. 1973, with Roe v. Wade coming along, It was protected, but we needed to update our laws to make sure it reflected what Roe v. Wade allows. So we didn't have this for all these years. In fact, we had opposition to even simply codifying Roe v. Wade from conservative elected officials who lost in the last election, thank God. So what we did was we, first of all, made sure that we had reproductive health coverage in our our state law contraception coverage, mandating that insurance companies cover contraception, making sure that insurance companies cover in vitro fertilization and egg freezing, recognizing that so many young women uh, have fertility issues or they want to delay their family. It's all part of family planning. Or LGBTQ couples wanted to plan families whenever they choose to. Uh, And also maternal mortality. I work on that Realizing that women of color are four times as likely to die in childbirth than white women are, and the injustice of that, and how we can deal with those biases that are occurring in the medical profession. We have a lot to do with respect to women getting enough pay in the workplace. So I'm working on closing the gender gap. And part of that is a salary history ban. And some states have considered this. It may be going, I think, in California, that's part of the law there. But what we want to say is that. A lot of women are held back because they don't negotiate a good salary from themselves right at the beginning of their career. Myself, for example, when I was a young staffer on Capitol Hill, I had left a large law firm, took a 50% pay cut because I really didn't like the law firm. I wanted to work in public service, but I didn't realize that making 25000 I was an attorney. The man next to me who was not an attorney was making more than me. And I didn't know that. And now I would say that holds women back throughout their careers if they don't negotiate On behalf of themselves in a better way in the early part. So, we're not going to allow people to ask what your prior salary history is. There should be a value attached to a job, not your own experiences. And that's what holds a lot of women back. The other challenge we have, which is huge, is childcare. So many women are struggling with the fact that they want to spend more time at the office and further their careers and they. You know, whether it's in tech fields, whether it's in the legal profession or here in Wall Street or families that are just trying to work a couple minimum wage jobs and pulled all together. If they don't have access to sometimes even around the clock child care where someone who works the night shift at a hospital, you know, a cleaning person at a nursing home throughout the night, who's watching her kids and accessible, affordable childcare we're finding is not just a family's problem, it is now an economic problem for the state of New York because we're not getting the benefit of the full economic power of women achieving their full potential and earning what they deserve. So we are finding out ways and working with partners in the federal government and other areas where we figure out how to incentivize workplaces to address this need, have more flexible hours for women. And in fact, it was just a, a great story in the New York Times in the business section on Sunday about a man and wife who were both classmates in, in Cornell Law School, both went to big law firms. But when the children came along, you know, she dropped back to two days a week because there was no one to watch the kids. And he propelled himself into a much higher earning position and how historically it falls back on women to be the ones responsible primarily for childcare. And what can society do about that? What can we do to help alleviate that and and have more equity in in that space? But also, we don't have an equal rights amendment at the federal government level or at our state level. And that is unconscionable to me. The women's rights movement started in New York State way back in 1848 when 300 women gathered in a remote place called Seneca Falls. And now it's a national historic landmark, a place they gathered. And they debated the issues of the time, but women were so fed up even back as far back as 1848, saying that they're tired of being the property of men. They wanted to have the right to vote. They wanted to have the right to own property. And we are really the birthplace of this. And I say in all my speeches to women, that is in our DNA to fight to make sure that we protect women every way possible. And one of them is to make sure that in our state law that we have an equal rights amendment. So this women's justice agenda is everything I spoke about, but I'd love to cap it all off by the end of our legislative session, just uh, another month away at the end of June, to have a new equal rights amendment here in New York, and also make sure that we get the the 38th state. Uh, Virginia has to pass it so we can finally have a
0: uh, correct our federal constitution, and make sure that we take care of the needs of women. Right. You know, ironically, today the House is having hearings for the first time on the Equal Rights Amendment, right? And I think this is the first time they've had hearings on this in 36 years. Um, and Carolyn Maloney, my old
1: roommate in Congress, has really been the champion of this, and she is dedicated to it. And she's, her husband was related to Alice Paul, who first proposed the Equal Rights Amendment back in 1923 in the state of New York. So this is uh, a legacy that she's been pushing her entire career. And I couldn't be prouder to know that you know she's been championing this. And if we can get everyone on board and finally make a statement, what a great statement it is for the women of this country. When we have a a woman who's elected speaker and one of the most powerful people on this planet, Nancy Pelosi, and now so many more women in office, not just in New York, but in Congress. But to be able to say that we finally, after decades and decades of trying, we finally have enshrined these rights into our constitution. It is long overdue.
0: Yeah. And, you know, we don't have time to go into everything that's in the women's justice agenda, but I'm going to put it in the show notes because when I was reading through it, I was really impressed. Like just the, you know, the budget for child care alone, I think it's something like 25, 26 million. I think people just really go through that and see as a model to see what we can apply nationally. I appreciate that because we do think that.
1: You know, particularly with the rights of women being attacked daily in Washington, that the states now really have to step up. And New York loves to lead on these issues and be a model for others. But simultaneously, we have other states, particularly red states, that are sliding backwards. I mean, really starting to find ways to deny reproductive rights and say that you can't have an abortion after a heartbeat is heard, which could happen in 18 days. I mean, there's there's insane things happening all over the country. So so states like New York and California really have a responsibility to stand firm on behalf of the millions of people we represent and to try to make sure that we have some common sense in our policies and, and don't turn the clock backward to the 1800s or even pre-Roe v. Wade. So that's the challenge we face now that didn't exist before Donald Trump was elected president.
0: Hmm. So what would you say in closing, what would you say to any woman who's sitting back and and she's on the fence? Like she really wants to do something, wants to be an activist or one for office. What would you say to to push her to to start? It's, it's, I'd say, what are you waiting for?
1: What are you (laughs) waiting for? You only have one chance to go around in life and every day matters. You do not know how long you've been given to be on this planet. And you need to make sure that every day you're making a difference and bettering the lives of other people. And that is your challenge and that is the legacy you'll leave to your children when they look at you uh, someday and say, you know what, just like I was inspired by my mother, I hope to inspire my daughter and the next generation as well. So, so women need to just stop thinking about it and know that they have talents. We need their voices. We need them engaged and step up and just do
0: it. Well, well, Lieutenant Governor Kathy Hochul, thank you so, so much for joining me today. You really, really inspired me and, and thank you for your, your life of service. Well, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be on your show. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you found this interview with Kathy Hochul as inspiring as I did. If you did, why don't you tweet something about it? Hashtag electorate podcast and let me know. Again, all the information about the How She Does a campaign and the New York State Women's Justice Agenda can be found in the show notes. And you can find that also at electorate.com slash 73 electorate.com slash 73. And also, every day I'm working to make The Electorate better, to bring you more inspiring guests and women who are doing useful research, who are writing really interesting books. If you want to support that work and you want to elevate the work and voices of women, please subscribe to The Electorate on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And also please leave a review. Reviews are very important for podcasts. Lastly, I'll be posting an ad-free version of this episode on Patreon along with my other episodes. That's also another way to support the electorate, and it also helps me bring you more conversations with more inspiring, passionate women, and that's at patreon.com slash electorate. And that's it. So until next time, keep up the good fight.